welcome to the Cover to Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover to Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. This is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. On October 24, 2018, President Trump signed a historic opioid bill into law. That bill, the Support for Patients and Communities Act, or H.R. 6, is the subject of today's podcast. In this, our second installment of our H.R. 6 series, we'll revisit the three programs we profiled on earlier episodes of our series that will be modeled across the country thanks to the passage of H.R. 6. And we'll close today's podcast with U.S. Senator Rob Portman's comments on this historic piece of legislation. We begin today with a clip from a local newscast on Alto from St. Joseph Healthcare in Patterson, New Jersey. You know, I I got addicted to it. Recovering addict Josh Copeland talked about his brutal love affair with opioids. He used to live under a bridge in Patterson, a rough road that started, he says, when his doctor prescribed addictive pain meds. I kept coming back and asking for more, and and they, they cut me off, and, you know, you know, I transitioned over to street drugs. Heroin? Yes. More often than not, it's people in pain getting hooked on painkillers in their own medicine cabinets prescribed by their own doctors that lead to addiction. Percocet, Oxycontin, uh, Vicodin, and others. Four out of five new heroin users started out initially misusing pain pills. At a news conference in Patterson, doctors from St. Joseph University Medical Center described their program to avoid the pitfall of overprescribing opioids. They called it ALTO, Alternatives to Opioids. It's been so successful over the past two years, bills now pending in both the House and Senate promote ALTO as a national model. Now, this is the originator of the program. This is Dr. Mark Rosenberg. We added more tools to the toolbox. We have many more weapons now to manage pain. And the last thing I go for now is Percocet. St. Joe's runs the busiest emergency department in New Jersey, the fourth busiest in the nation. Since 2016, Alto helped reduce the number of opioid prescriptions issued here by 83%. Instead, doctors might target pain with nitrous oxide, laughing gas. They can inject a nerve block. Often, doctors layer different therapies. The hospital reports up to 75% of patients achieve adequate pain relief with alternatives to opioids. And this is Dr. Alexis Lipitra, and she is also one of the originators of the program. And they are substitutes that work. They are not just removing opioids and say, good luck. We are using something that we know will provide effective relief and that has been studied. Four other hospitals now use St. Joe's Alto model. Copeland, meanwhile, is a recovery coach now, lives in an apartment over the bridge he used to call home. He welcomes the Alto bills as a way to refocus the medical community and its patients. I feel if the doctor was more educated on the truth, uh, the patient was more educated on the consequences, um, I feel like everybody would have been in a better place. The Alto protocols are part of a legislative package slated for discussion in the Senate committee tomorrow. There's still no estimate for how much it would cost to implement the program nationwide. 
The good news is that program has uh, been rolled into HR6. And, you know, it's estimated that 80% of the people who are addicted to heroin actually started on prescriptions to uh, opioids. And uh, I think that was reflected in that news report from WJTV News. Many of them got their first prescriptions following a visit to the ER. A section of the HR6 provides grants to hospitals and emergency departments to study and implement alternative pain management protocols and treatments that limit the use of prescription opioids. That portion of HR6 is now known as the Alternatives to Opioids in the Emergency Room Act or the ALTO Act. So we did a program about two years ago on ALTO, and we're going to revisit that program now. For our program, I interviewed Dr. Mark Rosenberg. Again, he's one of the originators of that program at St. Joseph Healthcare in Patterson, New Jersey. Mark began our interview by talking about the origins of Alto. We wanted to be the best emergency department in managing pain, but trying to do it with completely without opioids. We found out very early that that was really a mistake. Uh, we couldn't be opioid-free because sometimes you need it for somebody with cancer pain or sickle cell disease or uh, from a traumatic car accident where they're uh, where they have fractured bones or a pelvis, uh, opioids are definitely needed and appropriate in those cases. But for the common conditions that come into the emergency department, like kidney stones and um, minor fractures and back pain and headache, we searched the world literature to come up with the best treatment without using opioids for many of these common conditions. And we were very, very successful. Dr. Rosenberg talks about the keys to Alto's success. Setting up the protocols required a lot of research, and many of the protocols, when it's just using alternative medications, did not need in-depth training, but indeed needed those protocols to be put into, um, into play. But some of the other modalities, such as trigger point injections, required some training. Uh, so all the physicians at St. Joe's have been trained in the trigger point injections and also in different types of nerve blocks that can be done for a fractured uh, clavicle or, or dislocated or fractured shoulder or arm. And so they learned all those different techniques. I wondered about training and implementation and the challenges that they presented for Alto, and we talked about that. I think that I don't want to mislead anybody. The long, the part that requires significant amount of training is the ultrasound guided nerve blocks. The medication protocols that handles more than 90% of the pain syndromes uh, that we deal with with the Alto protocol is really just a one or two hour lecture going through the new protocols, going through the different medications, uh, talking about patient um, case studies. So the majority of the Alto protocols can be taught over a very brief period of time, but realize this took a lot of research to put these together. Sure. All these protocols have been done elsewhere. We were the hospital and the program that packaged them all together into one program. Got it. Outstanding. Okay. So um, in terms of some numbers, what before versus after, what's the difference in prescribing practices? How often are opioids used today versus before? 
You know, it's interesting. Uh, physicians were very hungry for this knowledge and this ability to manage pain without opioids. And I can explain that in great detail. But let me answer your question first. The, the use of ALTO uh, principles have caused our physicians or have allowed our physicians to use almost 50% less opioids in the emergency department and also decrease their prescription of opioids for somebody who is discharged by almost 50%. The numbers are just staggering to have that great of success rate. Wow. And if I could, Greg, I'd love to explain why that pent-up desire for um, other modalities Please. really fed into this. Please, doctor. You know, when as a physician, I went into medicine in part to relieve suffering and eliminate pain from any patient who I was taking care of. And in my medical bag or in my toolbox, so to speak, there were really two different types of medications. There was the Tylenol and Advil side of the, of the medical bag, and on the other side was opioids. And if I wanted to really take care of somebody's pain, and I only had one chance to do it, I would use opioids. As we realized that opioids were much more addictive than originally thought, and that we were starting to run into an opioid crisis, there really were not good alternatives until the Alto program really researched and put together new alternatives. So it's, it's kind of like adding more tools to the toolbox. So the physicians were thrilled to do this and immediately started using these new protocols. Next, Dr. Rosenberg talks about the results of the program, and they were undeniable. So one of the key conditions that we use uh, alternatives for is kidney stones. You know, in, if you've ever had a kidney stone, it is considered some of the worst pain you can possibly have. And a kidney stone is actually a stone that leaves the kidney, which is in the mid-portion of the back, and travels down a thin tube to the bladder. And it's that travel down that tube that causes tremendous amount of pain. Uh, some people say it's the worst pain uh, that you can ever imagine, worse than childbirth. And we would typically give patients very strong opioids like morphine or Dilaudid. But what we found is if I gave IV lidocaine instead, and lidocaine is an anesthetic that very similar to what the dentist would use to numb up your mouth, if I would give that intravenously, it not only numbs up that tube that goes between the kidney and the bladder that causes so much pain as the stone travels through, but it also allows for easier passage of the stone so that the duration of therapy can be completed in a much shorter period of time than given opioids. Many patients who come to us with kidney stone pain require nothing more than IV lidocaine, and then they pass the stone while they're still in the emergency department. And these are patients who in the past I would give heavy narcotics or opioids to, and I would also send them home with a prescription for the same. One of the areas where we've had the largest increase in patients are two main areas. One is moms who are bringing in their school-age children who have gotten injured while playing soccer or another sport are bypassing their local emergency department 
to come to our emergency department because they don't want their child to have opioids. And we can manage their pain without use of opioids by ALTO principles. Another group, to my surprise, were those who had a dependency on opioids in the past, whether they were a heroin user or they had trouble with opioids from prescription use, and they don't want to go down that pathway again. So they are coming to us saying, I don't want opioids. Can you manage this without opioids? And indeed, we can. Tragically, every 25 minutes, a baby is born in America addicted to opioids. The number of babies born with NAS, or neonatal abstinence syndrome, has increased more than 300% between 1999 and 2013. And these babies all require special care to ease their pain and suffering. Sadly, many will not receive that care due to a lack of specialized NAS resources that are available nationally. In October 2014, Lily's Place, the first NAS center, was opened in the United States. I want to open this piece of our podcast with a clip from another local news agency that profiled them recently. Lily's Place is in the national spotlight this week with a well-known publication showcasing the crucial work they do with moms like Linda Preston. I want to be the best mother that I can and be able to give back and actually help here at Lily's Place. Lily's Place has been crucial for her and her baby. We take care of babies who were prenatally exposed to drugs. Um, so we are actually a medical facility and provide the medical care these babies need while they are going through the withdrawal process. We also have a social worker on staff who, while we're medically taking care of the babies, she also works with our families. And People Entertainment Weekly Network took notice, too. They had um, look, looked online, I think, and found us and found that we are the first of our kind in the nation. And we're really trying to be a template for others in the nation because we know these are services that are needed everywhere, not just here in West Virginia. And so um, they came and did a piece on us and got to know a little bit more about what Lily's Place does. Mm -hmm. And we were really, we're happy with the piece because we feel like they, they did something that is very positive and inspirational. Mm -hmm. And we're hoping that other parents will see this and realize there is help for us. Amber Clements was also part of People's Feature and is thankful for the second chance with her daughter. She definitely helped me change my life for the better. Her dad actually is the one that pushed me to get clean. Dr. Sean Loudon has been a part of Lily's Place from the beginning. It's one of the things that we're most proud of, is that there's only one place in this whole entire world where this system of care between a hospital, a specialized unit within that hospital, the NICU within that hospital, and then an outside um, organization as well, there's no other place in the world where you find that system of care. We are unique. One of the co-founders, nurse Sarah Murray, saw the need for the facility five years ago when she worked in the NICU. We want to be their partner in having a healthy baby and a healthy family when they leave here. So that's, if I could say anything to a mother out there, I'd want to say, don't be afraid, call me. I answer my phone every time it rings. A message shared by this new mom too. I wish there could be more places like this opened here and pretty much I mean, everywhere because it is a really big help and it is a place that mothers can go and not feel judged and have help. And 
for really understanding. Last December, CEO Rebecca Crowder introduced us to Lily's Place. A lot of people are just really starting to learn what is neonatal abstinence syndrome. You know, it has the basic definition of a group of problems that occur in a newborn who is exposed to addictive opiates while they are in the mother's womb. And so, you know, these symptoms that these babies go through depend on the type of drug the mother used, how much of the drug she was taking while she was pregnant, how long she used the drug, and how the body breaks down that drug. Um, so, you know, these, there's such a large range of symptoms that these babies go through, and every person, every baby is different on how their body metabolizes, you know, these, these drugs. So there is just such a huge range of different issues these children can have. When a baby is um, born, they initially do not show symptoms immediately. Um, often it can take up to 72 hours before the symptoms start to show. So um, babies are monitored closely to see what type of symptoms they start to show. Um, some of these symptoms include um, modeling, which is the blotchy skin color, diarrhea, excessive crying, high-pitched crying, um, an excessive suck, fever, hyperactive reflexes, increased muscle tone, irritability, poor feeding, rapid breathing, sleep problems, um, sweating, trembling, just tremors. I think that's the one that people see the most and hear the most about. Um, there's also some more severe problems such as seizures, um, vomiting. Um, there's just a, a huge oh. range of different things you can see in these babies. Wow, it sounds that way. So what's a typical scenario, Rebecca? I mean, you don't know that the moms are using a lot of times, I would imagine, or do you? No, you don't always know. Um, here in my community, our hospital has mandatory testing for every woman that gives birth. So a lot of times they are able to, you know, capture that child's um, exposure because of that. But not every community has that. So that is, you know, obviously a big concern we have. Um, often, you know, these babies are identified because of the mother's urine drug screen or a history of the mother's drug use that she admits to or if she is in a medicated, um, medication-assisted treatment program. So for those that are in active addiction, trying to hide it, sometimes their babies may not even show symptoms before they're released from the hospital. So I, that's one of the reasons I think early detection through the mandatory testing of all women, you know, that's important. I'm glad that my local community does that. Some of these mothers are first-time mothers. But we also go into the specifics about how to care for your baby who is suffering from NAS because there are very specific things you have to do with these children. They cannot handle like what other babies do. Like your first instinct when you pick up a child is to bounce them. You cannot do the, that with these babies. Why not? Got to, they cannot handle it. it. They become overstimulated. You have got to use the therapeutic, slow, comforting, um, very gentle movements with them because that's what they can tolerate. So we have to train the parents and caregivers on how to do that. This Cover 2 podcast is sponsored by Relink.org. Relink.org is an online research tool that allows you to quickly locate addiction recovery and reentry resources in your area. It includes everything from treatment to housing and employment. Go to Relink.org today to find services or add a resource for free. With Relink.org, help is just three clicks away. Every 15 minutes, someone dies of an overdose in our country. 
When first responders or emergency care providers bring someone back to life with Narcan, there's a small window of opportunity to get them help. In April of 2017, we were introduced to Anchor ED, a program that connects people who have been admitted to the emergency rooms for opioid-related overdose with trained peer recovery coaches. And I want to introduce this segment by playing another news clip, and this is from a local news outlet about the program. George O'Toole is no stranger in an emergency room, both as a patient. Drugs, it, it guided my life. It, it, it ruled my life. And as a recovery coach, someone who works with people should they survive an overdose. Since July 1st, we've seen 205 people in the EDs throughout Rhode Island. Rhode Island and Newport Hospitals, two of the busiest. There's been a huge movement in Rhode Island, I think, to address this crisis head-on. Which has led to potentially life-saving partnerships between hospitals, Anchor Recovery, they provide the coaches, state agencies, and health care providers. No person who has overdosed will make it to recovery unless that overdose is reversed. That's where the readily available anti-overdose drug, naloxone, has made a difference. And Anchor Recovery coaches, led by George O'Toole, take it from there. So we call them from the emergency department. They come in in about 30 minutes. Only if a patient is receptive. Most are. So how do you approach someone? You know, tell them your story, who you are. I'm a person in long-term recovery. I've been there. I've done that. I've been on these beds. I, you know, um, I'm here just to help you. And when George says he's been there, he means it. I wanted to end my life. I was, you know, I, I had nobody in my life. I had no family, no job, no home, no nothing. But here he is, clean. Six years, July, July 27th. And even though the statistics are alarming. Drug overdose deaths have increased about 15 times since 2009. Health providers know if substance use is treated and maintained like any chronic disease, something wonderful can take hold. Listen, life's worth it. Life's worth living. Look at me. I spoke with Michelle Harder, the associate director of the Anchor Recovery Communities, last April about the program. So the program was developed in uh, 2013. Um, it was a combined effort between Rhode Island's Department of Behavioral Health and a gentleman by the name of Jim Dillon and a woman by the name of Rebecca Boss, who were basically having coffee one day and um, started talking about the overdose issues in the state of Rhode Island. Uh, at that point, they decided to go visit with some uh, doctors, ER doctors, um, and ask them, what what do you do with people that come in here on an opioid overdose? And, and basically the answer was, you know, we kind of let them lay around here for four or five hours, and when they're feeling better after they've, you know, gone through some withdrawal, we, we send them home. And, um, you know, home for them maybe out in the street. So they uh, talked about maybe treating these people and seeing these people with a uh, peer recovery specialist, a recovery coach, someone who's been where they've been, who's been in that emergency room, laying there after an opioid overdose, having been administered Narcan maybe once, maybe five times, um, so that they can talk to them on the same level, have some empathy and some sympathy, and additionally give them uh, information and support around their addiction, um, as well as a little bit of Narcan training. Um, some hospitals provide a Narcan kit, um, and we've been very successful in our program here in Rhode Island. Next, Michelle talks about the success rate of the program. So the new number that we have is 86.3%. That's huge. Yes, it's absolutely huge. 
Now, that being said, we don't keep in contact with all of these people. Sometimes they're not able to be contacted anymore for one reason or another. So, uh, but those are people that have initially engaged with a recovery coach, um, have followed through and spoken to somebody on the phone or gone to treatment or gone to detox. So, um, the, the, the outcome is, is pretty favorable, pretty positive. Next, Michelle shares one story that stood out over all the rest for her. You know, there's so many, Greg, that um, it's hard to pick just one. But I will tell you a, a quick story about a woman who um, was seen in the ED at the inception of the program by our um, now manager, George O'Toole. And um, she was in her mid-30s and had um, suffered quite a few overdoses and had been revived, thank goodness, by uh, Narcan. And um, she didn't really want to have anything to do with George while he was while she was in the emergency room, but she did take his information, his card, and all the information about Anchor. And George, um, as we do with everyone, continued following up with this woman for the um, mandatory 10 days after the visit. But then he chose to continue to try and follow up with her. And he did that for about three months. And um, she would never answer the phone. And one day she did answer the phone. And she said, you can't imagine how much it has meant to me that you have called me every single day and left a message and said, I'm just checking on you, see if you need anything, if you're okay. Um, And she said, your phone calls have kept me clean for the last three months. I asked Senator Portman to put H.R. 6 into perspective for us. I think it'll save lives. I I really do. And, you know, Greg, you have been awesome. You have taken your grief and channeled it into something so constructive. And what the federal government needs to do is to be a, a better partner. And one thing this legislation does, which is long overdue in my view, is to say that with regard to the fentanyl, which is the synthetic opioid, which is coming mostly from China, mostly through our United States post office, uh, you know, needs to be stopped because this is poison that is killing more Ohioans than any other drug now. Probably two-thirds of our overdose deaths last year were from fentanyl. It's increased about 4,000% just in the last five years in Ohio. Uh, So this legislation is very simple. It says a federal government agency like the post office should put screening in place to try to keep some of this poison out. I think it'll work very well to reduce some of the supply of fentanyl, which has just flooded our streets and flooded our communities, but also raise the cost of it just because there will be now uh, uh, increased difficulty in getting it into the country. Um, And then second, as you know, this legislation helps on treatment. And this is a huge uh, priority for for mine. I know it is, is for yours. This is a disease addiction. It needs to be treated. And for many years now, going back really to the 1960s, Good Ohio inpatient uh, treatment centers have been told, you're capped at 16 beds. That's all you can do. And you and I both know people who have gone to treatment centers, finally, you know, willing to accept treatment and to deal with their addiction and are told, sorry, there's, there's no room. There's no room at the end. And I have heard stories of families, including one gentleman who called in on our monthly teletown halls and said his daughter had gone to the treatment center with her father 
she was finally willing to get the treatment that they had been urging her to get for so long. And they said, sorry, we're, we're, we're full. Come back in a few weeks. We'll see if there's room then. Well, during that few weeks, what happened is that, you know, she was, um, using, she overdosed and she died. And to this father, this bill is incredibly important because now it says there is a lifting of that 16 bed cap, but then the opioid crisis hit and we needed that 16 bed limit to be raised. So this is something I've worked on gosh for probably a dozen years, Greg, and it was really satisfying. It's consistent with legislation that I introduced, uh, like the stop act on a bipartisan basis. And, uh, so it's a, it's a, I guess the sense of satisfaction that the legislative process can work, you know, on a bipartisan basis. And then finally, the bill does a lot to help kids, babies, moms. It has $60 million for a plan of safe care for babies that are born dependent on drugs. This is this terrible issue of children who are born to moms who are addicted and they have what's called this neonatal abstinence syndrome. They have to be taken through withdrawal as tiny babies. And so we're providing more funding for helping to avoid that by getting moms into a treatment program of many good programs in Ohio like this, where the mom is able to taper off her use and therefore deliver a healthy baby without this syndrome, which is unfortunately a growing problem in our neonatal units, our hospitals all around the country. And for these children, these babies, it's uh, it's very sad to see what they go through, but also we just don't know what the long-term health effects are. Uh, And then we also were able to pass what's called the CRIB Act, which helps these babies at the next step after they have uh, been born with this neonatal abstinence syndrome, they've gone through a withdrawal period, uh, which is really painful to watch uh, these babies going through the pain of that withdrawal. But then we need to have a place for these babies to go, and often they can't go to their families. There's no foster care available, at least in the short term. And so there are these organizations that have stepped up and said, we will take care of these, these babies. We'll provide them love and care. Volunteers come and hold them and love them. And that's needed, and uh, they have not been able to get reimbursement from the federal government until now. Now they can for people who don't have the ability to pay um, uh, to get some kind of Medicaid reimbursement for those wonderful facilities. So those are examples. You used the word uh, historic, Greg, and I appreciate that. I do think it is historic. I think it'll, as I said earlier, I think it'll save lives and, and help people who are in addiction be able to get back on their feet. So I'm... I'm pleased we were able to get it passed, and I can't wait for it to be implemented. I hope it'll immediately have an impact here in Ohio. Speaking of implementation, how soon do you project these programs will begin rolling out across our country? We've given the post office a very short uh, leash, which is necessary because they have had really 16 years to implement these kinds of screenings. Uh, other private carriers were asked to do it after 9-11. The post office was asked to study it. Private carriers are all doing it, FedEx, UPS, and so on. So we want that to happen right away to keep the fentanyl out. We've given them uh, a, a target of this year, and within the first year, there has to be 100% screening of all packages from China, as an example, uh, which is going to require some work. And uh, I know that, and that's one reason the post office has pushed back over the years. But this is a crisis, uh, and it is totally unacceptable for a U.S. government agency to be this conduit. Uh, and with regard to the CRIB Act, it should happen very, very soon. Um, but we're, we're going to stay on top of that. And uh, sometimes the federal government takes a long time to implement things. In this case, we can't wait. We have to move and move quickly. The Washington Post provided a few key indicators uh, to watch engaging the state of the opioid epidemic. 
As one of our foremost leaders on this issue in Washington, what indicators are you going to look at to gauge the effectiveness of HR6 in addressing the opioid epidemic? That's a terrific question. Well, we had a roundtable discussion, too, in fact, this week, um, both in counties in western Ohio. And I posed the same question to the county leadership, the, the uh, opioid task forces that have joined. Uh, in both cases, it was a three-county area. And, and um, I challenged whether opioid overdose deaths was the only and correct measurement because that's one that, that uh, a lot of groups use. Uh, it certainly should be one, no question about it. And the fact that fentanyl has overwhelmed our system has increased the death rate, no question about it. Fentanyl is so deadly, 50 times more powerful on average than heroin. Um, but I don't think that's the only indicator. I think there should be others as well because there are many people who are suffering uh, from addiction but who are not overdosing and certainly are not overdosing and dying. And yet you want to see that you're making progress to get them back to their families, back to work, back to their faith, back to everything that they have forsaken uh, for the for the drug. So I would look for a broader indicator. I know it's tough to find a, an objective one uh, other than overdose deaths because there we have the information from the coroners, uh, which, uh, as you know, we, we get this information every month. But I want to know how many people are still suffering from addiction. It's a harder one to get at, uh, but I'm hoping we can figure out some way to measure the, the rate of addiction. And then the final thing I, I think we should be looking at is the uh, EMS data because, again, a lot of people are uh, being revived with Narcan, this miracle drug that reverses the effects of an overdose, and that's data we do have uh, from our EMS providers. Uh, I think we should be looking at that more, too. It's not overdose deaths, but it's it's the number of times that they have to apply Narcan, the number of overdoses that they're dealing with. As we close this episode of our podcast series on H.R. 6, Senator Portman provides the last word on this important piece of legislation. Well, Greg, again, I go back to what I said at the beginning. I thank you and I thank all the people who are volunteers and who are professionals who are working in this area. Uh, This week, I was really pleased that at every one of our meetings, we had law enforcement present because it's so important law enforcement, probation officers, uh, drug court personnel, Um, sheriffs, uh, chiefs are engaged in this because I do believe that there's an opportunity to turn the tide. I think we're making progress. We're closing some of the gaps. We are ensuring people can get into treatment more easily, that it's not just a matter of applying Narcan, as important as that is, but it's a matter of getting people into treatment. These quick response teams are working well all around our state, uh, again, with law enforcement. In today's program, we revisited programs that we profiled in earlier episodes of our podcast series that will soon be replicated in communities across the country thanks to the passage of H.R. 6. To learn more about these programs or contact their originators, please go to cover2.org, access Episode 55 for Alto, Episode 151 for the complete episode of Lily's Place, and Episode number 90 for Anchor E.D., I'd also like to thank all our guests today, including Dr. Mark Rosenberg, Rebecca Crowder, and Michelle Harder. And a special thanks to Senator Rob Portman for providing the last word on HR6 for our listeners. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you.
you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.